I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Forgive me if you were here the other night. I'm going to uh, offer the little nine to why Queen Mary Spiel to start. Um, as David said, I am director of the Poetry Center at the 92nd Street Y, which was founded in 1939. Uh, we began recording our readings in 1949, and uh, we have just about every major and minor writer of the uh, 20th and 21st century in our archive. I'm in London uh, on a fellowship at Queen Mary, uh, looking at literature and public performance and literary afterlives. And uh, this series, which the bookshop was kind enough to host, is an outgrowth of an anthology on uh, Poetry Center Online, a website that we've created where we invite contemporary writers to listen to recordings and write introductory essays. We then post the response and the recording. Um, we've done about 45 of them, and uh, I encourage you to check out the site. Uh, before getting to the recordings, before asking Hisham to introduce the first one, I thought that uh, I would lay the groundwork. Uh, Borges first read at the 92nd Shuai in 1968. He made four appearances at the Y between 1968 and 1976. Uh, in April of 1968, he gave a reading with uh, American poets and um, uh, a number of uh, people who were both poets and also working on a translation of his poetry. The recordings we're going to hear tonight are all from this April of 1968 recording, which featured exclusively Borges' poetry. And uh, we'll, we'll get into Hisham's ideas of, of Borges as a poet in, uh, in a minute. Uh, I think, though, as one more way of setting the stage, I, I wanted to just read from Borges every time he published an edition of his poems between uh, 1923 and, and his last collection in the mid-80s, he would write a preface. And in the preface, he would say different things about what he thought these poems were doing and who he was as a poet. And so as a preface for, for tonight's conversation, uh, I'm going to read short passages from just the prefaces that go from his beginnings as a poet in 1923 to uh, the publication of the selected poems in, uh, in English 
in America in 1971. And uh, so here we go, 1923. This is Borges. Author's prefaces are usually a halfway compromise between the arrogance of someone defending his own work and the modesty demanded by established tradition. If in the following pages there is some successful verse or other, may the reader forgive me the audacity of having written it before him. 1925. This book is a token of my poverty, written not in passion, but meditation. In these pages, the reader will find a long, weary street out in the western stretches of town, sad in the sunset, and the loneliness of love denied. Our daily lives are a dialogue between life and death, woven of memories or else of plans, a mere hope of being. A great deal of non-life is in us. Chess, gatherings, lectures, small tasks are at times but appearances of life. Let every poet praise the things that are akin to himself, for that is really poetry. 1960. Leaving behind the sounds of the plaza, I enter the library. At once, in an almost physical way, I feel the gravitation of the books, the quiet atmosphere of ordered things, the past rescued and magically preserved. 1964. The taste of the apple, states Barclay, lies in the contact of the fruit with the palate, not in the fruit itself. In a similar way, poetry lies in the meeting of the poem and the reader not in the lines of symbols printed on the pages of the book. What is essential is the aesthetic act, the thrill, the almost physical emotion that comes with each reading. Maybe there is nothing new in this, but at my age, novelties matter far less than truth. 1966. What secret roads led me to the love of all things Scandinavian? 1967. There is something mysterious about the sonnet. 1969. Here are my habits. Buenos Aires, the cult of my ancestors, the study of old Germanic languages, the contradiction of time which passes and of the ego which lives on, my amazement that time, our substance, may be shared with others. Poetry is a mysterious chess whose board and whose pieces shift as in a dream and over which after I am dead I shall go on pouring. In 1971, first and foremost I think of myself as a reader and then as a poet. When this book was begun some three years ago in Cambridge, it was the first time I had ever taken a direct hand in the translation of any of my own work. Norman Thomas, De Giovanni, and I have gone very thoroughly over each piece, each line, each word. The fact that I am not only a collaborator, but also the writer, has given us great freedom, since we are less tied to verbal precision and to the inner meanings and intentions. I should like to thank the outstanding British and American poets who, by their skill and generosity, have made English poems of my Spanish originals and so given them this new life. Uh, before we start, I, I wanted to also say that um, when Borges was in America in 67, 68, it was at the invitation of Harvard to give the Norton Lectures. And while in Cambridge, uh, he met a young translator named Norman Thomas de Giovanni, who um, was one of the first people to recognize and really get excited about Borges as a poet in English. And uh, it was, uh, he was the one who uh, asked and helped put together the list of American and British translators who ended up working on Borges' poems in English, and he was the one who helped organize the reading at the Y in 1968. Uh, he was the one who helped edit and arrange for a number of English translations of Borges' early work in the 60s and 70s, and uh, he was also the one who uh, helped Borges begin writing stories again, and also uh, write an autobiography for The New Yorker. 
And uh, he died last month, and I think this is an event that is some way uh, a tribute to him. Um, and so, uh, without further ado, I've gone on. Uh, Hisham, thank you for coming. Uh, before we, we play the first clip, would you say something about your Borges, and in particular, uh, why you've chosen to focus on Borges the poet? Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming, um, and thank you, uh, Bernard, for this mischievous invitation, um, because uh, there's a risk, I think, in coming across as presumptuous uh, if you suddenly say, I, as a writer, a humble writer, have chosen to speak to you about Borges. Um, Jorge Luis Borges, for me, is not... Um, um, I'm not a disciple of Jorge Luis Borges. Anyone who has read one page of my work would know that. Um, but my relationship to him is um, one as a reader, and very much I'm here with the passion and gratitude of a reader. The other danger, I think, in speaking about a writer that is so close to one's heart is that the place that Jorge Luis Borges occupies in my um, imagination, in my reading, in my life, in my literary engagement, is one that is very fluid. He moves all the time. Uh, and there's a risk, I think, when you suddenly say, okay, here I am, you know, sitting here, I'm going to tell you something about that relationship. There's a risk in fixing it. So I think it's a very Borgesian problem. Um, but so, uh, uh, obviously, as a prose writer, he is, uh, the stories are incredibly uh, important to me. But with time, over time, um, I, I am reading and rereading more Borges the Poet. Um, and this is the reason why I thought uh, this evening we could focus more on his, on his poetry. Also, out of perhaps the secret passion that maybe you know him more as a short story writer, as a prose writer, and less as a poet. Um, the, the clip that we will start um, with is one that is um, um, maybe a little bit unusual because um, we're catching him mid-sentence, uh, mid-statement, mid uh, and then there is a silence, um, and he is whispering with uh, Mark Strand, the poet that's with him. So he's not really, we're not really supposed to hear what he's saying. And you could just about make it out. The recording, uh, the wonderful um, technicians have tried to, to bring up the volume so as you could hear what is being said. But it's going to be tricky, which is why we have a, a transcript. So, so bear with it. If you can't make it all out, we'll, we'll read it. Attempt endless enterprises because we are assured of failure. We need not hope for success. We know that failure is our prize, and that prize cannot elude us. And the reason why I am studying Old English and why I shall grapple with Old Norse when I'm back in Buenos Aires is that I know that I shall never come to the end of that journey. I attempt Old English and Old Norse even as I have attempted and even as I, shall, as I shall attempt philosophy, religion, and theology, because I feel quite safe about it. Because I know that we shall never know 
what the universe is or who we are. Yeah, no, I don't think you can even make it out, but I really suggest you, you look at, uh, you know, listen to the recording later on, on, on the website. And uh, it's, uh, if you want to make a, a note of it, it's at, at minute 13.54, you can hear it. Um, and so this is, uh, Mark Strand says, that was very good. Uh, Borges says, not too scared, no? Uh, and Mark says, no, 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 not, 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 not. Not anymore. And Borges says, why should I? Two glasses of red wine. Mark Strand says, you are terrific. From here on, it's very, very easy. Borges, of course. If you begin by failure, you go on to failure. Um, and then they say things that are very difficult to hear. And then Mark Strand says, well, one can't hope for any worse. It's the most crowded I've seen it here. Borges says, that's right. After all, my grandfather died in action. Mark Strand says, I know that. Borges says, well, in that case, why should I be scared? And my grandmother got her fingers stuck in, in the, we don't know where, because it's hard to hear. <laughs> um, I chose it because, obviously, it's very amusing, but I also chose it because I think, on a serious uh, side, it's, um, it says something about his sensibility. Because there's something very guarded. I mean, you heard it here. Something incredibly guarded and performative about Borges, which is delightful. It's not only in, 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 in person, but on the page. Um, there is that performative quality. Um, but also, I think it says something to... Uh, about how seriously he takes this, that he, he equates uh, reading his poems out to a public that he's not quite sure about, to his father, to his grandfather dying in battle. The other thing that it makes me think of is that um, wonderful uh, part from the uh, book of um, Imaginary Beings, uh, where he describes all sorts of strange creatures, right? They're not quite... Um, um, that he's fished out from mythology and some of them he made up himself. And there's a, one particular monster called Aboa Aku. And Aboa Aku is a monster that lives in the Tower of Victory. And uh, it is, to all intents and purposes, almost non-existent, dead all the time until someone steps at the first step of the, the Tower of Victory, and something about another human being, or a, a human being, climbing the Tower of Victory, fills this monster with life. And the monster wakes up at that moment. And I always thought that was, in some way, Borges talking about writing. But what happens when when, when he engages with this, with this medium. A lot of what he does actually is about writing. We'll get to that later. Shall we go for the next, um, the next Yes, this passage? is uh, the poem, poem written in a copy of Beowulf. Borges will read it in Spanish, and then Mark Strand 
reads it in English, and you should be able to hear every word. Well, we'll begin by a sonnet in Spanish. Then we'll go on to the translation, the translation that greatly improves the original. <laughs> then we'll put up with my comment. I think it runs thus. Composición escrita en un ejemplar de la gesta de Beowulf. A veces me pregunto qué razones me mueven a estudiar sin esperanza de precisión mientras mi noche avanza la lengua de los ásperos sajones gastada por los años. La memoria deja caerle en vano repetida palabra y es así como mi vida teje y desteje su cansada historia. Será, me digo entonces, que de un modo secreto y suficiente el alma sabe que es inmortal y que su vasto y grave círculo abarca todo y puede todo. Más allá de este afán y de este verso, me aguarda inagotable el universo. study while my night came down. Without particular hope of satisfaction, the language of the blunt-tongued Anglo-Saxons. Used up by the years, my memory loses its grip on words that I have vainly repeated and repeated. My life in the same way weaves and unweaves its weary history. Then I tell myself, it must be that the soul has some secret sufficient way of knowing that it is immortal, that its vast encompassing circle can take in all, can accomplish all. Beyond my anxiety and beyond this writing, the universe waits, inexhaustible, inviting. So why did we choose this, this, this excerpt? Mainly because my, my enthusiasm for Borges um, is primarily, it's almost in the order that he describes himself. You know, he describes himself as a reader, then a poet, and a prose writer. And he also gives us a lot of information about how we mustn't believe how he describes himself. Um, but it's, there's no other writer that I know of that writes as a reader uh, in a sense that he seems to be, he's, he reminds me a lot of Bach in the sense that Bach has this wonderful intimacy of seeming to be sitting right next to you uh, and saying, can I have a look at this? What do you, you know, isn't this interesting? Um, and Borges has that kind of disarming quality about him. And also, um, the other reason I chose it is because you know that wonderful thing that happens when you're reading, um, when you're reading something that isn't um, familiar to you. You're reading an, about people maybe who are very foreign or different time, different place. And 
what happens in those moments, it's not necessarily that you are being introduced to a, a world that you don't know. Uh, but the really magical moments are moments when you encounter yourself in these strange worlds, right? And these moments are incredibly expansive, but they're also very hard to judge. They're hard to, to, to know what is exactly going on with you, how you're being shifted from your center. And so Borges is always talking about reading and inviting us to think about reading as a kind of experiment, you know, that, that the outcomes aren't necessarily clear to you. Um, that on some level it could be incredibly dangerous and it could be, it could be transformative, uh, the act of reading. Yeah, and, and this isn't the only poem that uh, seems to take shape as a kind of marginalia. He, he's found to be writing other poems in addition to Conrad, for example. And uh, there are any number of poems which attempt to uh, get inside the, the mind of some of his favorite writers, uh, whether that's James Joyce or he has a, a, another poem that uh, he's going back to a time uh, imagining Robert Browning as, as someone who's just walking the streets and not yet become the Robert Browning who, who we Think of so he, he's his source material uh, in a lot of his poetry is what not just what he's been reading and responding to, but uh, his fascination with with the inventors of the the works that uh, tend to follow him throughout yeah. his life. Fascination, but also it's a, a kind of wonderful confidence about him that I find really inspiring. Um, he really does believe, and you hear it in that poem, he does believe that he is capable of being connected to, to everything across time, um, across cultures. His reading shows that kind of enthusiasm for, for literatures of the world. It's also kind of, you know, isn't it bizarre that he sort of seems older than his contemporaries, like people like Italo Calvino or something, people that you'd think they were writing at the same time and maybe you could even argue they have some, some things in common, some preoccupations. But there's something very 19th century about him, about his, his, his reading. But, but, but 19th century in the sense of its confidence, in the sense that he could go into Arabic literature, and then go into German, and go into French. Um, and I found that very inspiring growing up, reading somebody like that, from Latin America. So a place that was far away but comparable in some way. Lots of the things that we were dealing with were not abstract concepts <laughs> in Latin America. Um, and, um, and the fact that from that perspective, he could show that incredible confidence in reading you know, European, uh, Eastern literature, and reading it in such a way that uh, seemed to, you know, he seemed not to be hindered by, 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 by his ignorance. So the yeah the next one, Matthew twenty five thirty, which is one of um, Borges's poems, read again by Mark Mark Strand. Yeah, this this is Mark Strand followed by not not uh, there's no reading in Spanish. This is followed by Borges' own uh, commentary, and uh, this recording is about six minutes. Matthew twenty five thirty. 
the first bridge, Constitution Station. At my feet, the shunting trains trace iron labyrinths. Steam hisses up and up into the night, which becomes at a stroke the night of the last judgment. From the unseen horizon and from the very center of my being, an infinite voice pronounced these things. Things, not words. This is my feeble translation, time-bound, of what was a single limitless word. Stars, bread, libraries of East and West, playing cards, chessboards, galleries, skylights, cellars, a human body to walk with on the earth, fingernails growing at night time and in death, shadows for forgetting, mirrors busily multiplying, cascades and music, gentlest of all times shapes, borders of Brazil, Uruguay, horses and mornings, a bronze weight, a copy of Grettir's saga, algebra and fire, a charge at Hunin in your blood, days more crowded than Balzac, scent of the honeysuckle, love and the imminence of love and intolerable remembering, dreams like buried treasure, generous luck and memory itself where a glance can make men dizzy. All this was given to you, and with it the ancient nourishment of heroes, treachery, defeat, humiliation. In vain have oceans been squandered on you. In vain the sun, wonderfully seen through Whitman's eyes. You have used up the years, and they have used up you, and still, and still, you have not written the poem. Since I have never written the poem, and in a sense, nobody ever will, I can only say a few words my personal confession about the poem. The confession is that I had the actual experience I, was, I have described in the poem. I had been quite specially unhappy those days and I went to walk down the south side, down Constitucion, and then suddenly I was going over one of the railway bridges and then I had that forgettable experience. It did not come in words. I suppose it lasted a moment. If one can speak of moments, when one feels, of course, one is wrong, that one may be on the brink of eternity. And then I felt those things that I have very lamely tried to translate into words. And among those things, perhaps the most important was the fact I thought 
the God who fate or chance they made me the same thing had been squandering gifts on me. I have been given many things. The son Walt Whitman, the borders of Uruguay and Brazil, horses and mornings, as I say, but I have also been given those more precious gifts of happiness and bitterness and loneliness. And yet I had made nothing of them. And so I wrote the poem. And my purpose is that this poem should be always the very last to be published. The one that should fill the last of the pages in any volume of mine, that men should think that I had been vain enough to think I had written the poem. I knew I shall never write it. And perhaps this is one of the reasons that make me go on writing, not with a vain hope of achieving the poem, but rather, as I said some time ago, I'm always repeating myself, but rather because I am assured of failure. And being assured of failure is, of course, something. <laughs> Things, not words. I love how this poem illustrates a, a problem that paradoxically, it's a problem with literature, but it's paradoxically the way that he, that he illustrates it fills me with enthusiasm for literature. That literature itself, language itself, is forever translating. There's a big problem here. It can never name the thing. It's always pointing words towards the thing. And of course, translation is something that Borges is so interested in, and he uh, completely embraces all of its, um, all of its problems, um, in the sense that, that um, he writes in one of the, the prefaces to, to his poems that the translation of these poems is, um, was started in the earnest belief uh, that uh, we will create a parallel text that is um, uh, true to the original. But we ended up with a completely different text that has nothing to do with the original. And also the other thing that it makes me think about is, is how in that poem he's aware and slightly overwhelmed the way that the repetition of these words, the attempt to kind of fix them, overwhelmed by things being lost to oblivion. Of how do you hold something? How do you sustain it uh, in language? And in that, of course, there's a, an echo of a theme that runs through all of Borges, which is the theme of the labyrinth, which in some, in some way also means for Borges godlessness, despair, prison. And I think his fascination with these boundaries, I was thinking about this, that the boundaries that he's always wanting to, to complicate for us, the boundary between Borges, the writer, and Borges, the man, the boundary between one language and another, the boundary between time, between distances, is, is, is part of this fascination of the labyrinth, of being imprisoned, but also being incredibly conscious of, of the boundary between things. There's something I thought of that uh, is worth sharing is he loves Whitman, and he first read Whitman in Germany. 
and realized while living in Europe that this was a mistake and he should probably order a copy from London. He first read Don Quixote in English and when he finally read it in Spanish he thought this is a bad translation. <laughs> the idea of translation also comes into play when we're thinking at this point in April of 1968. He, he's been entirely blind for something like 15 years. His identity as, as a reader and a writer are now bound up in the social act of either being read to or dictating. And uh, he sometimes talks about how there are a lot of copy editing mistakes in his work because he's not been able to proofread them. Something else I think of when reading this poem where the infinite voice says at the end, and still and still you have not written the poem, is this idea of the legacy that he inherits from his father. His father was a, a lawyer and he taught psychology mm. and, and like Borges and like many of his ancestors, uh, he too went blind. But Borges Sr. wrote uh, a novel that was self-published and never went anywhere. And, and, and years later, when, when Borges Sr. had gone blind and, and um, was nearing the end of his life, he said to, to Borges that uh, maybe you could rewrite it for me. Mm. Um, but this idea that Borges talks a lot about his ancestors who were men of action who died in battle. He was never going to be a man of action. He was going to be a man of letters. And he also says that early in his life, there was this idea that he was going to be the artist that his father couldn't be. Mm. And this, this pressure or this mm. idea is something that he lives with his, his whole life. And um, I think in, uh, in a review of uh, a biography of, of Borges, Colm Tobin talks mm. about whether it's uh, Naipaul or Henry Picasso. William James yeah. or Picasso. Yeah. This stuck with me. And, and, and in thinking about your family also, mm. the, the question of writers and artists who are the sons of writers and artists who maybe didn't yeah. become writers and artists, but mm. became something else. Not, yeah. If we could spend a few minutes talking about you and, and your own thoughts as a, a writer. Spend a few minutes talking about you. <laughs> uh, and then we'll get back to Borges. No, I mean, that, that is a parallel. I, I don't know how significant it is, but it's a, you know, yes, his father was a writer that never became a writer. There's nothing more despairing and toxic than a writer who never becomes a writer and I mean, it's, it's, what I mean is that's something you can never get rid of, you know? It's something that's always there. Um, and my father was a writer who never became a writer and who was also a man of action. But, um, but I don't know, and beyond that, I don't know what else to say about it, really. Um, I think literature is oftentimes in moments of uh, great political urgency or where you're around men and women of action becomes a currency that is very hard to defend and a currency that is very hard to, I don't mean defend the value of it, because obviously Borges' father understood the value of it, but 
defend its space, defend the kind of quality of silence and space and attention that literature requires. And one of the things that I went to Borges to as a as a writer and as a reader is that he seems to have Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A wonderful confidence about the space for literature. It takes it for granted, and he is eloquent and patient with it, and he's also a little bit playful and, and, and cocky sometimes about literature. He could just go in circles about it. And uh, that sort of confidence I found very, uh, very um, heartening and, and, um, and inspiring. Yeah. Should we hear another question? Let's, let's go to, to uh, Spinoza. Uh, it's a poem that is, um, we're going to be, we're going to hear it read in the Spanish by uh, Mrs. Borges, who reads beautifully. Um, and then there'll be a commentary by Borges. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it begins with a reading in, in English by an American poet named Alan Dugan, who's, who's not well known, but you will, you will hear a, a distinct Queen's accent, <laughs> a little bit of Queen's and Bloomsbury. Yeah, lovely. Spinoza. Garrett room, the Jews' translucent hands grind his lenses in a falling light. Cold and fearful are the running sands. All afternoons are weary in his sight. His hands and an afterglow of hyacinth that lingers on behind the ghetto's wall. Barely exists for this quiet man in thrall to his high dream, a clear-cut labyrinth. Fame does not trouble him, that distant gleam dreamed in another mirror's hidden dream. Nor does love tempt or lure him from his art of metaphor and myth he is left free and works hard crystal to infinity. The map of him who is all his many stars. Mrs. 
Espinosa, las traslúcidas manos del judío labran en la penumbra los cristales y la tarde que muere es miedo y frío. Las tardes a las tardes son iguales. Las manos y el espacio de Jacinto que palidece en el confín del reto casi no existen para el hombre quieto que está soñando un claro laberinto. No lo turba la fama, ese reflejo de sueños en el sueño de otro espejo, ni el temeroso amor de las doncellas. Libre de la metáfora y del mito, labra un ardo cristal, el infinito mapa de aquel que es todas sus estrellas. I think this advances this idea about how, how words themselves are, are an interesting problem uh, for a writer. 
And here I would just like to say a couple of things about Borges, the archivist, because I think his relationship to, to writing has a lot to do with that. He seems to be always suggesting to us that as soon as you make a list of things, as soon as you make a dictionary or an encyclopedia, something else occurs in your attempt to fix meaning. That when Dr. Johnson, motivated by good intentions, made a list of words and tried to arrive at a definition that uh, is going to be authoritative, a whole set of other things will occur that Dr. Johnson can never anticipate because they're based on variables, variables of time, variables of who that individual is that, are going to be, that is going to be engaging with this word, and so on. And this is a quality that goes back to what I was trying to say about his, his enthusiasm for the, for the uncertainty of limits. Um, and, and it's an uncertainty that, that isn't sort of despairing or burdened. It's exactly the opposite. It's, it's, it's full of vitality and excitement about what it might be to to be a human being in the world. The lines that stick with me are, the confines of the ghetto walls barely exist for the quiet man who's, who stalls there dreaming up a brilliant labyrinth. And I think, intentionally or not, a, a lot of these poems that he's, he's writing uh, in affinity with or inspired by the works of literature and philosophy are mm. ways of identifying with them and, 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 and thinking of himself and his own work, you know, not so much in the living, but in the, the thinking about and in, in the making of art. He um, comes back again and again to the idea that, and you can hear it in these recordings, that maybe the poem is good and maybe it's not good, or, or maybe it's a failure, or maybe it's not. But he uh, he's going to keep writing them, and that's uh, an inspiring thing to, to hear. And when you put these things together, I mean, when you consider his, his, his playfully confusing the boundaries between things, between meaning and between people, his insistence that reading is an uncertain experiment that uh, stands the risk of altering the world, and his internationalist attitude towards literature that, to him, it's, it's never a national enterprise, but a, a universal uh, phenomenon then for me, he belongs to a very small group of writers or artists. I mean, Bach, I mentioned Bach, but also Proust and, and Shakespeare. They're artists that, together with one's phenomenal admiration, something else is there, a kind of sort of affectionate gratitude. All of the writers that I admire, most of them, I have absolutely no intention in meeting at all. I would actually rather not meet them. <laughs> But I would have loved to have had a chance to take a long walk with Borges. I think I would have really enjoyed that. So to, to, to close, and in this spirit, I want to read you a poem that Borges wrote in English, just to show us how fantastic he is. And I want you just, we're just going to do an experiment. I want you to suspend what the I might mean here, okay? It could be many, it could be many things, okay? But just suspend the meaning of it for a minute. What can I hold you with? I offer you lean streets, desperate sunsets, the moon of the jagged suburbs. I offer you the bitterness of a man who has looked long and long at the lonely moon. I offer you my ancestors.
my dead men, the ghosts that living men have honored in bronze, my father's father killed in the frontiers of Buenos Aires, two bullets through his lungs, bearded and dead, wrapped by his soldiers in the hide of a cow. My mother's grandfather, just 24, heading a charge of 300 men in Peru, now ghosts on vanished horses. I offer you whatever insight my books may hold, whatever manliness or humor my life. I offer you the loyalty of a man who has never been loyal. I offer you that kernel of myself that I have saved somehow, the center heart that deals not in words, traffics not with dreams, and is untouched by time, by joy, by adversities. I offer you the memory of a yellow rose seen as sunset, years before you were born. I offer you explanations of yourself, theories about yourself, authentic and surprising news of yourself. I can give you my loneliness, my darkness, the hunger of my heart. I'm trying to bribe you with uncertainty, with danger, with defeat. I don't want to ruin the poem by giving you some fancy interpretation, but I wanted you to suspend the word I because I sometimes read this poem as what it seems to be, poem written by one person for his beloved. But sometimes I read that word I as maybe that's the eye of literature. Maybe that's what literature is promising. I'll stop there. Should we take some questions? And we can take answers too. Hi, I was struck by what you said about labyrinths earlier. And I wondered um, if you could answer this question. Do you, do you think Borges believed in God or in a world conditioned by the absence of God? I don't know. I mean, I would, I would, I would suggest that... Borges, like perhaps many of us who have been brought up into the world of God, right? In some way. Maybe some of you are lucky enough not to have had that experience. But if you, if you have been brought up, it's almost inescapable. The references become inescapable. So I don't, I'm not so interested in whether he believed in God or not. I'm more interested in how he uses that shared reference in order to speak about other things. What does he say in uh, Everything and Nothing? Mm. His idea of God and Shakespeare are having mm. a conversation. Mm. He says yeah. uh, something like, correct me, God is talking to Shakespeare and says, I made the world like you make your place. Mm. And uh, throughout Borges' work, he, he's, he's, he's playing with different notions of, of the the divine, and I think, comes down on the side of literature and art. Although at, at the end of his life, he, he was he was in Geneva taking regular visits from a priest. Yeah. So the biographers have mm. insightful things to say about what mm. was going on at, at, at the end of his life, but I don't think yeah. either of us. But what I mean, what 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 also is is fascinating is it's hard to imagine him being adamant. You know, that's sort of part of what's really interesting about him as a teacher, as it were. Because he seems, to, he seems to demonstrate how a space of uncertainty and doubt 
um, is um, is one that is filled with with vibrancy and and um, you know endless incentives to curiosity. So if I'm pushed, I would say I can't. I don't know if he's a believer, but I can't imagine he's not a believer because he's in that space. It seems to me of uncertainty. Who knows? Answers questions. Um, hello, this is a question from uh, Monica on Facebook, watching live on Facebook. The question is, what's wrong with men of action? What about words that do things? <laughs> well, I don't, I mean, I don't, I mean, in, in a pure, I mean, I don't know if anybody is saying there's anything wrong with men of action. We're certainly not here to evaluate anybody. Words do things, they do do things. It's what they're being asked to do, though, it's, I think is, I don't think, Literature is energized by being employed if, if do things meaning that it serves some kind of objective. Literature is intransigent about its independence. It will make a fool of you if you try to wield it for your own purpose, even if it's a noble purpose. So it's, 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 more, it's more like a structural, it's a structural problem. <laughs> the structural problem is that you know, the only way it would work is if it's, if, it's, if it's being served rather than if it's serving anything else. So the writer's position, in my view, is to serve the curiosities of, of his or her writings. One of the things that, that Borges said um, in thinking about these ancestors of his who, who died valiantly on, on the battlefield, their weapons and war paraphernalia were all over the house that he grew up in. He says... In a desk drawer among rough drafts and letters, the dagger endlessly dreams its simple tiger's dream, and grasping it, the hand comes alive because the metal comes alive, sensing in every touch the killer for whom it was wrought. And I like to think about the way that the uh, dagger maybe teaches the rough drafts and letters something while it's waiting in the drawer. I was just going to say... That was wonderful because I love Borges, but I've never heard him speak before. And what a distinctive, yes, yes. strange rhythm yes. to his talk. Yeah. What's that about? I, don't, yeah. I, I was not expecting that. For, yes. it, it, I, I know he has Scottish ancestry, but that almost sounded Irish, didn't it? There's something about that lovely yeah. rhythm with which he spoke. Yeah. Can, you, do, can you make a relationship between that and the, the prose at all or the poetry? No, it does get under your, your skin. It's sort of, it's hard to, 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 to get rid of that rhythm. I think maybe, it might be because of the fact that he didn't read Braille. So he was blind and didn't read Braille. And he turned up at this moment in New York where it was really the first time that people were hearing his, many people there, it was the first time that they hear his poems. And he was obviously nervous. And so I think he prepared these commentaries very much like with the lectures that he had just delivered in Harvard just before this, which were all, you know, I assume told from memory. I mean, how else, right? If he didn't read Braille, he just memorized the whole thing and must have developed this rhythm in order to sustain. I think that might have something to do with it. But also, the rhythm also tells you something about, it reveals to you to the, the extent of his passion about English literature. I mean, he's, he's a, he really loves English literature, and you could hear that. Strangely, the rhythm yeah. doesn't sound very Spanish to me. I mean, I'm mm. right. I, I mm. feel that the difference between him and when his wife reads, it's yeah. a very yeah. rhythm. Yeah. 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 
And it was a lovely act mm. of universalism to learn Anglo-Saxon blind mm. in your old age to, to make that choice to learn actually a, what we call a dead language. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Also, the accent was the product most likely of, as a young boy, really, going to Europe and spending mm. eight or nine years there, mm. having a, as you said, a English grandma. He was, as his father was, bilingual from birth. Mm. It's absolutely right. The, the, the lectures, all of these commentaries, they're all, they're all drawn from memory. He used to go on, on walks with his mother and talk and then say, how long have I been talking? She would say, an hour. <laughs> and he would say, good, I was worried I wouldn't have enough. Yeah. It's, it's just a thought, and maybe there's a very obvious answer to this question, but I was just struck by the fact that he would learn Old English and not learn Braille. Like you said, he could... Can you say that again? It's just a thought, um, and maybe there's a very obvious answer to this question, but mm. I was just struck by something. Somebody said that he would learn Old English, but then not learn Braille. Like the... oh, well, because Old English is probably far more interesting to him, I assume. You're right. I mean, there's a practical reason, of course, but... I mean, we know from lots of accounts that he has found a way, he's found a facility around his blindness. Um, I've always found it really quite, um, really quite admirable how he never spoke about his blindness, really. He never, I mean, it must have been incredibly difficult. This is a man who loved the movies, for example. He loved these big, big, epic Western films. <laughs> he loved them. And when he, whenever he spoke about film and going to the cinema, he never spoke about it with any kind of hint of kind of sadness. It was always just this enthusiasm for it, even after going blind. So, and he has found many interesting people to come and read to him. And I think he developed a relationship. I mean, you could notice in his writing that the writing itself changes. You know, it becomes more, he's more interested in sound. He's more interested in language, not as written, but as spoken. And, and I think... I would wager he actually enjoyed hearing it rather than reading it. Um, yeah, I think. I think. Too, oh, yeah. oh, I was mm. going to say, um, I think he liked writing in his head. I think he enjoyed turning the sentences and images around and in between the sessions of dictation. He, he would go off and write. Although, for a long time, he, he, he went blind in the 50s. And he was somebody who, something like six generations of People in his family had gone blind before him. He'd seen his father go blind. He, he had had something like eight unsuccessful cataract operations. He knew this was coming his whole life. But in the, in the 50s, he starts writing more sonnets. There's something about the form that's, that's easier to, I don't know if easier is the right word, but he's able to get from beginning to end and also puts away story writing for a while. It's really when... Um, when, when this translator and editor, Norman Thomas Giovanni, comes along and gets a grant and ends up moving to Buenos Aires and living there for a few years, that he's going on walks with Borges. Borges is showing him around parts of town that he hasn't visited in a long time. And he, he starts to write stories again, or he starts to tell mm. Norman Thomas Giovanni's stories. And Norman says, is that a story? And Brody's reports come out of that, having been encouraged to feel like he could write stories again. And, and the autobiography that The New Yorker publishes in 1970 is a long piece of prose which, which is wonderful and you should look up online and it just is, is him 
telling the story of his life to, to this guy. Mm. And also, you know, for whatever reason, there seems to be a, he seems to have found a way to be enthused by limitations, you know. Like, I remember um, this account of him meeting twice a week, he and his wife with these friends, and they would eat together, and, you know, in the friend's home. And they would do this on Tuesdays and on Thursdays. And the rule was that the food has to be incredibly boring. It has to be white and no salt, like really terrible food. Because he believed that the worse the food was, the better the conversation would be. <laughs> you said you were taking uh, answers as well as questions. Hopefully yes. this is... Yeah. Something, something of an answer. So I love the sound of Borges' voice as well. Not just the rhythm, but just the, the sound of it. I think it's beautiful. Yes. And I could listen to him all day long, talk about anything. Good, you can. Um, and, <laughs> and, and so it was just, I hope everyone else knows that the Harvard lectures were recorded and they're available on, online. That's right. Um, yeah. which, on YouTube, I think you could find them, right? No, I got them on some other website. Unfortunately, I don't know what it is. My phone is turned off. Right. Um, but it's searchable if anyone fancies to li listening to Borges talking about literature for hours at a time, <laughs> which I know I do. <laughs> it's in English, yeah. Great. Well, thank you all for coming. And thank you, Bernard and Hisham. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.